John chapter 12. Can you guys believe we're almost done with the 2013? Did you guys do anything fun for 11, 12, 13? So... Did you, did you buy a lottery ticket? <laughs> Me neither. My odds weren't very good. Chiefs or Broncos on Sunday? Broncos? Yes and amen, Broncos. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thanks for your love, for your goodness. Thanks for the beautiful sunshine uh, we've been receiving and Father, your loving care for us, your tender love for us. And we come hungry for you, desiring more of you. We pray that you would bless your word, that you'd feed our souls, that you'd give us greater knowledge into Jesus Christ. Pray also that we'd be strengthened in our inner man by the power of your Holy Spirit, those areas that we feel weak and discouraged in, Father, that you would breathe life into those areas. We treasure and value your word, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 12, verse 1. As we've been studying the gospel of John, you'll know the purpose and why John wrote this letter, this gospel. And the reason for it is so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ. And through believing, we would have life in his name. So how many miracles or signs are recorded in John? How many? Seven. There's seven that are recorded, only seven. So that stands out with the other gospels because the other gospels are chronological and cover many more events. So how many I am statements? Seven. There's seven I am statements. So that's easy to remember, right? Seven I am statements and seven miracles. And last week we saw the resurrection of Lazarus. And this is mind-blowing, but chapter 12 is tied to chapter 11. Isn't that mind-blowing? And they really would be best studied together. And if you're not familiar with this, we know that the chapters and the verses got added by translators and we're thankful for it. Could you imagine how difficult it would be to find a section of scripture if it wasn't broken up? But it's not inspired, meaning that it's not given to us by the Holy Spirit. So we need to keep in mind the resurrection of Lazarus as we go through this, this miracle, this sign that God takes death and brings it to life. And each miracle is teaching us something about Jesus, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. So let's jump in in verse 1 of chapter 12. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he'd raised from the dead. Now this is very significant, and we'll talk about this more next week, but this is six days to the Passover. We're now entering into the last week of Jesus Christ. Just to give you a broad understanding of the Passover, if you're new to the scriptures, is it goes back to the Old Testament when the children of Israel were in bondage. And God said to them, I want you to take a lamb, and I want that lamb to be slain, and the blood of the lamb to put upon your door, upon your doorposts. So that's what the Hebrews did. It was a lamb that was slain for a family. And then death passed over them. And everyone who didn't follow the instructions, they, they lost their oldest son. Their oldest son was killed. 
And so the Egyptians, they lost their eldest. And Pharaoh, we know ultimately that's what caused him to say, all right, Israelites, you can go. You can go outside of the land. But Israel was to remember this feast every year and to look back upon the lamb being applied to the door, bringing deliverance. And this Passover stands out, it resounds, because Jesus Christ is the lamb not slain for a family, but slain for the world. Remember when John the Baptist saw Jesus Christ, he says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we apply the blood of Jesus to our hearts, there's forgiveness to us. So this is six days before the Passover, Jesus comes back to Bethany. He had been out in the wilderness, and now he returns to Bethany, just two miles from Jerusalem, where Lazarus was dead, but now he's alive, and there's a glorious occasion that takes place in verse 2. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Now Martha learned her lesson about serving with angst. Remember when she served in Luke 10 and she got all angry that Mary, her sister, wasn't serving? Now she's continuing to serve. She's continuing to operate in her gifts, but it's out of contentment. It's out of rejoicing, and she's not mad at anybody else because they're not serving with her. So it says specifically that Martha has served, and who's there at the table? It's Lazarus who is dead. And I'm sure Mary and Martha never thought they would have this joy of sitting down again with their brother. But here they are, sitting down with their brother Lazarus, and it reminds me just a little bit of what heaven's going to be like. Maybe you have a loved one that's already gone home to be with the Lord. Someday we're going to join them at the marriage feast of the Lamb. Imagine just for a moment what kind of food that's going to be. It's going to be glorious, right? Jesus is going to be there the guest of honor, the one that we worship and the one that we serve and our loved ones gathered around that marriage feast of the Lamb. We now focus in upon Mary. Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Now, if you're taking notes, if you're writing things down, we're gonna see several points about worship here in just a few verses. The first thing about worship is there's a sacrifice in worship. Mary chooses to bring this very expensive oil and to pour it out upon the feet of Jesus. When we worship the Lord, it should cost us something. I think of David in the Old Testament where he said this, I don't want to give anything to the Lord that costs me nothing. We don't want to just extend our leftovers to God, but we want to bring our very best to the Lord. And that's what Mary does here. She brings her very best. She finds what's most valuable to her, and she lays it down at the feet of Jesus. And this is the expression of being a living sacrifice unto God. It's where we give the very best unto the Lord. And what's our very best? It's our very being. It's everything that we have, and we lay it down at the feet of Jesus. But there is sacrifice that's involved in worship. There's no cost that's too great to be laid at the feet of Jesus. But then there's the expression of worship. She anointed the feet of Jesus with her hair. So she pours this ointment on his feet. She's got long hair, assumingly, be very difficult with short hair. So we're assuming she's got long hair and she begins to wipe Jesus' feet. We think about the expression of worship and you know what comes to to my mind is uh, my youngest, Wyatt. He's 17 months old uh, this week 
And he's in this phase where when I come home from work and he hasn't seen me, he did this tonight when I came home from dinner, he just lifts both hands and he's like, oh, you know, and he wants a big hug from dad. And he's expressing, dad, I love you. I'm so excited to see you. And that, that, that's it. You know, that's made the day, made the week right there. Just, just seeing him give that expression. And as us as God's kids, we want to express worship to, to the Lord. And that can be done in many ways. Sometimes people lift their hands to God, and maybe you come from a church background where you don't lift hands from God, and you come to Rocky Mountain, and you're like, I don't know why people are raising their hands in worship. It's an expression of worship. It's that adoration to the Lord of, God, you're good. It's like a young child saying, oh, I want to be, be close to you. Daddy, hold me. You know, we're crying out to the Lord in the same way that a, a young child does. But what I appreciate about Mary's expression of worship is it's creative, Right? She literally has gone outside the box. She's broken the box and pouring out this ointment upon Jesus' feet. And sometimes in worship, we just need to get out of the box. We get in our routine, and here's worship, and it's another Wednesday night, another Saturday night, another Sunday morning. We go, you know, I just want to be creative in my love to God. How can I show the Lord that I love him, and I'm thankful to him, and I, and I appreciate him? And Mary does that in her expression of worship. But also there's the impact of worship. This whole room just begins to smell now of a beautiful and wonderful smell that comes from the fragrance that she's poured out on the feet of Jesus. And there's just a fragrance about a worshiper. You can't really explain it, but they've just got the Jesus fragrance, don't they? And it's contagious, and it's joyful to be around. I, I love hearing people worship the Lord. I love people, hearing people sing to God here in the sanctuary or inside of our house or hanging out with friends and someone just starts to begin to sing a song unto the Lord. It's contagious. It's encouraging. There's, there's an impact that happens when people worship the Lord. And here we are studying Mary's worship almost 2,000 years later. In verse 4, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who, betrayed, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now we find the resistance to worship. And please take note of this. If you're going to worship God in a creative way, and you're going to go outside of the box, and you're going to give unto Jesus something that costs you a lot, you're going to have people that ridicule you. Maybe your heart is to go on the mission field and you're going to risk it all. You're going to move. You're going to find people that go, you know, isn't that just a little too far? Isn't there lost people here? I can't believe that you're taking that risk and you're, you're going to do that. And you're going to find that resistance. Yeah, there is lost people here. And God's calling us to them as well. But he may be calling you to go internationally. You may be facing ridicule even tonight because you're here on a Wednesday night. Man, you're a Jesus freak. You're a real radical. Like, you go to church twice a week? What's wrong with you? I can't believe it. Maybe it even comes from inside of your own family. You've got an unbeliever. Maybe your spouse is an unbeliever. Some roommates are an unbeliever or co-workers. And they're like, what are you doing on a Wednesday night worshiping the Lord? But there's always going to be that resistance to a true radical worshiper of Jesus Christ. Again, referring to David's life, he was so excited about the tabernacle coming into Jerusalem that he starts dancing before the Lord. And he was dancing in his ephod. 
and his wife thought that that was undignified for the king to, to be out there dancing in that manner before the Lord. And she ridiculed him. His own wife ridiculed him for his love for the Lord and his creative expression of worship to the Lord. So there's going to be that resistance. In verse 6, this he said, not that he cared for the poor because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. Man, that takes guts, doesn't it? You're walking with Jesus, the King of kings, the creator of the universe, God in human flesh, who's doing all of these miracles. And here's Judas over here, and he's just taking from the money box. So people were giving to the kingdom. They were giving to the work that Christ was doing, but yet Judas was stealing from it. And this is evidence that we can be around Christ, we can be around the things of Christ, but yet not be a partaker of Christ. This shows Judas' evil heart. He's not interested at all about the poor and the poor receiving this 300 denarii. One denarii was an average day's wage. So this is almost one year of wages. This is a lot of money. And he's not concerned about the poor. He's simply going, this is a lot of money that I could steal to myself. Verse 7, but Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. I wonder if they caught this and they understood it. I don't think so. Jesus is saying, she's preparing me for my burial. I'm going to die. I'm about ready to be crucified. And this is the last note on worship. And it may be the most important. It's the value of worship. And worship has great value to us. But the point here is Jesus valued Mary's worship. It meant something to Jesus. And Jesus says, man, the poor, you're going to have them with you forever. There's always going to be that need to to serve the poor. But Mary has taken the opportunity to seize worship. And God's not just interested in what we do for him. It's also how we minister to him. Did you catch that? It's not just all the works we do for him, but the relationship that we have with him. And there's a lesson about Mary's life. Man, seize the opportunity to worship. If it's a Wednesday night and we come in here, man, seize the opportunity to worship. If it's during communion, seize the opportunity to worship. If it's in the shower, seize the opportunity to worship. If you're driving down the road, seize the opportunity to worship because God hears. It blesses his heart. It's valuable to him when we bring that sacrifice of praise. In verse 9, Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they may also see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. Lazarus was amazing in their perspective. They knew that he was dead. He was dead for four days. Remember, he stinketh, right? God not only raised him from the dead, but reconstructed him and brought him back to life. And they, oh, I hear Jesus is at Lazarus' house, but Lazarus is there too. It was like a show. They wanted to to go and see it. And the resurrection is a testimony without words. Christ raising from the dead was a testimony in and of itself that he was risen from the dead. And Lazarus being alive was a testimony unto the Lord as well. We're going to be marked by the trials that we go through in life and how God shows his faithfulness, his resurrection power through those trials. This was Lazarus, who was known as the man who was dead 
and now who is alive, people wanted to go and see. If you're going through cancer, you're known by that, by those who surround you. Oh, there's, there's a person that has cancer. They're, they're fighting for their lives. If you've lost a loved one, especially in your immediate family, with a spouse, with a child, people are like, oh, oh yeah, that's, that's the person that, that's lost a spouse. That's the person that's lost a child. If you've lost a job, people are watching. And as Jesus meets us in those pits, in those valleys, in those moments of despair, and his power is shown, and how he brings victory in those situations and peace and comfort, it's our witness. Verse 10, but the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also. So you've got two things happening. And if you could kind of picture this like a movie, right? And certain parts of the movie, you see all these good things happening. And then there's the backstory of the movie where someone's plotting evil. And that's John 12. There's people coming to Jesus, responding to the miracle, the sign of Lazarus' resurrection. But there's others that are plotting his death. And so the chief priest is working to put the details together of Christ's trial and crucifixion. In verse 11, because on the account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Underline this. Who is this talking about? It's because of Lazarus. This is a big deal. Because of Lazarus, the testimony of Lazarus, many believed in Christ. Can we be praying for this in our community? That God would bring many dead people to alive in him? So that people go, oh, I know this gal. I know this guy. And I know the life that they were living and God's gotten a hold of them and changed their life and transformed their life. And if he can transform them, he can transform me as well. Every single one of our lives is similar to Lazarus in this, that we were dead in our sins, but Christ has given us new life. Amen? And so as we share what Christ has done and is doing in our lives, it brings people to Jesus Christ. A lot of people run in these similar circles. You know, they'll have their kind of group that they're in. And sometimes it's a group that's just filled of a lifestyle of sin. And then one person in that group gets saved. Many people inside of that group then come to know Christ as, as their Savior. Verse 11, because on the account of him, many of the Jews went out and believed in Jesus. Verse 12, the next day a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So the next day, now five days before Passover, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out. So their response to Jesus coming into Jerusalem is because of what they've seen in Lazarus' life. Many of them went out and saw that Lazarus had risen from the dead. So they went and got palm branches and they met Jesus as he came into Jerusalem. This is known as the triumphal entry when Christ comes and he's hailed as King of Kings. When we went to Israel this last February, early March, we noticed and we learned that there's no palm trees in Jerusalem. Jerusalem kind of sits a little bit higher in elevation and they don't grow in that region. But down in the Jordan Valley, Jericho specifically is where the palm trees grow and the palm branches grow. Jericho is literally known, the name means city of palms. They had to go down to the Jordan Valley, get the palm trees and bring them back. So don't think, oh, here's a palm tree. Bam, I'm going to 
just knock off the branches. There was a lot of thought that went into this just for them to have the palm branches to meet Jesus. And this is what they cry, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Maybe you don't know what Hosanna means. It means save now. That's what they're crying out to. Jesus, save now. For many of them, it was probably in the mindset of save us from the Romans. They're under the occupation of the Roman Empire. They want deliverance, save now. Then they go on to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. This is quoting Psalms 118. This is a great psalm to go back and study. It's a messianic psalm that prophesied of the coming of Jesus. They're declaring that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. We know from the other gospels that the Pharisees, the scribes, are not happy about this announcement of Christ. They're trying to hush the crowd. And what did Jesus say to them? He's saying, if they didn't cry out, then the rocks would cry out. And we've often wondered, man, that would have been kind of cool to hear what the rocks would have had to say. The first rock concert, right? <laughs> Just can't resist. But if we don't do our job, then creation will. Creation will respond in recognizing Christ. In Psalms 118, this messianic psalm that's being quoted here, the psalmist writes, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And it's specifically referring to the day of salvation when God gives the chief cornerstone to be slain from our, for our sins. Yes, we rejoice in every day that God gives to us, but Psalms 118 is all about the day where God in human flesh was crucified for us. And that's what they're singing out to the Lord. Verse 14, then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This is Zechariah 9, 9, if you're taking notes. This is a, a prophecy that the Messiah would come riding in upon a donkey. We have to understand these are Jewish people who know and study and understand and were looking for the Messiah. They knew Psalms 118 and sang it often. They knew Zechariah 9 of this prophecy of the Messiah coming upon a donkey. And then here's Jesus coming in, and it's specific, upon a young donkey. That was part of this prophecy that was given. Now think about for just a moment and contemplate this. Again, the setting is the Roman Empire. These guys are all about conquering, aren't they? And how would a Roman general come back from his conquest upon his stallion with the spoil? I'm the man. I've defeated this. And here's God, the creator of the universe, coming in upon a donkey. This is the humility of Christ. This is the difference between driving a Ferrari and a Ford Taurus. You know what I'm saying? The Roman general is going to come in on his Ferrari, but then there's nothing too spectacular about a Ford Taurus. No offense if you drive a Ford Taurus. Not trying to offend anybody th this evening. I'm just saying that Jesus is coming in the Ford Taurus. Jesus is coming in humility. You can approach somebody in a Ford Taurus. You cannot approach somebody in a Ferrari. You know, that car is worth more than my house. I was watching 60 Minutes and the, the Ferraris go for 400000 up to $4 million for one specific car. It's mind-blowing. 
That's not what Jesus was coming in on, saying, hey, check me out. I'm authority. I'm God. He comes in upon a donkey to show his humility, to show his service. Next week in John 13, we're going to see God in human flesh washing feet, serving his disciples, comes into Jerusalem, riding in upon this donkey, fulfilling this prophecy, and also letting us know that he's approachable, that he's that suffering servant. When Jesus comes a second time, it's not going to be upon a donkey. He's going to come ruling and reigning as the king of kings, bringing justice. In verse 16, his disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that he had done these things and, and that they had done these things to him. So it wasn't registering Psalms 18, Zechariah 9.9. 9. The light bulb went on after Christ was crucified and after Christ rose from the dead. Be encouraged. The longer we walk with Christ, the more we understand. True? And that was the case for the disciples. In verse 17, Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. So once again, we see the influence of Lazarus had upon them coming out to the triumphal entry. It's listed there for us in verse 17 and 18. But when we look closely in verse 18, it says, for this reason, the people also met him. So it was Lazarus, but it was also all that Christ was doing through his earthly ministry. It also goes back to Daniel 9, and you study Daniel 9 closely, and the very day that Jesus Christ would come in on the triumphal entry was prophesied. And there may have been some that were studying Daniel 9 that knew that they were looking for this day, this hour, this moment. This is all mapped out by God specifically. All of the Bible is leading up to this moment when Christ would come in to Jerusalem and be crucified for our sins and rise again for our sins. This is the unfolding message of Scripture. Verse 19, Then the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Everything that they were doing was trying to thwart Jesus. But the more that they tried to destroy Jesus, the more people wanted to follow Jesus Christ. Anybody who opposes Christ ultimately is going to come on the losing end. They're not going to succeed. Could you imagine the frustration for these Pharisees? In verse 20, Now there were certain geeks, I mean Greeks, among those who came up to worship at the feast. So there's Gentiles, non-Jewish people, who were coming to the temple to worship. God's heart always through the nation of Israel was to reach the nations of the world. So the Gentiles were coming to worship at the Passover. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and they asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Quite possibly the greatest prayer in all of the Bible. Not, sir, we wish that you would solve our financial problems. We heard one time that Jesus fed 5,000 with a few fish and loaves of bread. We'd sure like a free lunch. Uh, we just heard that he raised someone from the dead. That sounds pretty cool. We'd like to see that. 
They say, we want to see Jesus. We want to know Jesus. We want to understand who he is. And if you make that your prayer, God's going to answer it. He longs to show us Jesus. A great thing to study and implement into our lives is what Paul prayed for the churches that he wrote to. And in Ephesians, he prays so specifically that they would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it's epinosis. It's the knowledge by experience. It's the way that you know a close friend or your spouse, not the way that we know about Abraham Lincoln. See, because Paul knew the secret that all of life comes down to epinosis of Jesus, knowledge of Jesus. And when we get that and we understand that, and like these Greeks, we start to make this request, I want to see Jesus. I want to understand Jesus in a greater way. So that's their prayer. It's a great prayer for us as well. In verse 22, Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Philip, to me, is one of those heroes in Scripture. And you're saying, why? Because we only see him on a few occasions, but every time we see Philip in the Gospels, he's bringing someone to Jesus. In John 1, he finds Nathaniel and says, you got to check out Jesus. In John 6, he found the boy who was willing to share his lunch at the feeding of the 5,000 and brings the boy to Jesus. He brought Nathaniel, he brought the boy, and now he brings these Greeks. So the three times we see him in John's gospel, every time he's bringing people to Jesus Christ. He's no Peter. He doesn't preach a sermon and 3,000 people get saved. He's not Paul. He's Philip. But when we see Philip, we see him bringing people to to Jesus. In verse 23, but Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. As we've studied the Gospels, you'll know that Jesus would say, my hour's not yet come. My hour's not yet come. What he was speaking about was the time of his death. Now he says, it's time. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. How's Christ going to be glorified, verse 24? Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. In order for wheat to reproduce, it has to die. Jesus is referring to himself. The cross is in view, days away. And he's saying, I must die in order to bring life. And think about all of the life that has been brought through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If he wouldn't have died, there would be no life for us tonight. And Jesus is aware of this fact, this truth, that life comes through death. And now Jesus exhorts us and he encourages us in the same way, to be willing to die. In verse 25, he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will will keep it for eternal life. Jesus is willing to die. Jesus is willing to give up his earthly life. Now he says, if you love this life, you will lose it. And for some, they're on this track of horizontal living, trying to find fulfillment under the sun. Ecclesiastes, Solomon fell into that, where he's looking for fulfillment in all the things of this earth. Well, maybe it's in learning. Maybe it's in education. He found that to not fulfill him. Well, maybe it's in women. He had a thousand wives. Said, nope, 
that's vanity as well. Maybe it's in possessions. He had so much gold that silver was seen as a stone in his kingdom. Someone found some silver, ah, that's not worth anything. That's a lot of gold. And he said it's vanity, it didn't fulfill him. And you read Ecclesiastes and he says it's the chasing of the wind. He loved his life, but he lost it. He could never quite get it. He could never quite be satisfied. Donald Trump was asked, well, when will you have enough money? You know what his response was? Just a little bit more. That's what's expressed in what Jesus is saying. And it slips into our mindset so easily. We go, man, if I just had a little bit more money in the bank account, or if I just got this promotion at work, or if we could finally do this in our house, or if we could just get a house, or if I could drive a Ferrari, I'd sure like to try that out, you know. And we're always grasping for more and grasping for more. We're gonna lose our life. But then Jesus says, hate his life. What, what is he referring to here? Jesus is trying to shock our system. This is something that goes against our nature. And he's not speaking of suicide or bringing pain to your, to your body. But he's saying, don't fall in love with the comforts of this life. Don't fall into this mindset of, of serving yourself. Don't love your life. Be willing to lay down your life. Be willing to die to your selfishness. And once we do this, then we're able to keep life for eternity. We understand what life really means. Life's not about give me, give me, give me. What can I get? What can I get? What can I get? But life is to give. Life is to share. Life is to be a blessing to others, to lay down our lives in worship to the Father expressed in our love for others. That's vertical living. And once we get that vertical living squared away, then we can enjoy life. We really start to experience life. Can I let you in on something? This does not happen one time and then you're set for life. That'd be nice. So today's the 13th of November, right? 11, 13, 13. It'd be great if we could just get all pumped up and sing a lot of worship and I could yell and shout and whoo, you know, and get all, maybe some people could start crying and everything and we'd be like, death to self, death to self, yeah, vertical living. And then we'd never have to make that commitment again and just be set till we were eternity. Then we'd be robots. That's what we would be, right? There's no just switch that you can flip that's going to put you in that eternal mindset. This is a daily decision multiple times a day. Why? Because our selfish nature is extremely strong. And we're going to wake up every morning and we're going to think, Team Eric. We're going to think, you know what? I'm really important today. My life's really important. My comforts are really important. I'm going to go around and get whatever I want at all costs, right? And we fall into that mindset. And so Jesus said that we have to daily deny ourselves. We have to daily take up our cross. We have to daily be reminded, it's not about me. It's about the Lord. It's about me surrendering my rights to him. I wrestle this. I have days like this where I just wake up and I'm like, well, I'm not sure if the Antichrist is in me or what in the world is going on. But the beast of the flesh and the sinful nature is very strong. And I have to make a conscious decision to say, no, I'm not going to be satisfied in getting everything I want. I'm going to be satisfied in drawing close to Jesus and serving others. And as I start serving others, then I find the joy of the Lord. I find the refreshment that comes from the Lord. 
We've got to die in order for life to come. In verse 26, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. So if we claim to serve the Lord, then we're going to follow the Lord, which means we're going to go in the direction that he's going. And where I am, there my servant will be also. So every day, God, what are you doing? What did I see you doing in the Gospels? I'm going to follow you, follow your word. And if anyone serves me, him, my father will honor. Now that's awesome. That kind of makes you stop and think, you know, I don't really care if, if people like me or they don't like me or people honor me or they don't honor me, but what would it look like if our heavenly father was like, oh, wow, you followed me today. You served me today. Oh, that was a lifetime of following me. That was a lifetime of serving me. And God says here that the Father honors that person that follows and serves the Lord. Brace yourself for this in verse 28. Father, glorify your name. This is the prayer of Jesus. And what he's saying here, and let me back up to verse 27. That would probably help a little bit. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Jesus is wrestling with the cross. That's what the hour refers from. He's saying, save me from it. I don't desire to to go to the cross. But then he says, for this purpose, I've come. He realizes that he came to be the ransom. And he expresses, Father, glorify your name. He's showing us what it means to die. To die to ourselves means that we do some things, a lot of things, that we don't want to do. Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. It wasn't like, this is going to be a nice trip to Disney World. Saying, no, if there's any other way, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And his soul's troubled. It's agony. This Greek word, it means horror. He's broken. And then he expresses, Father, glorify your name. I'm willing to die. I'm willing to take this cup. I'm willing to walk in obedience, to do things that I don't necessarily want to do for you to be glorified, for you to be honored. When Jesus says this, the Father speaks. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The Father's going to glorify the name of Jesus at his crucifixion and at his resurrection. We see the love between the Father and the Son in verse 28. In verse 29, Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. This is the third time the Father speaks audibly from heaven in the life of Christ. Remember the first one? The baptism of Christ. The second one? The Mount of Transfiguration. And now this is the third time that the Father speaks audibly from heaven. I don't know why, but it's something about the voice of the Father that's always fascinated me. I can't wait to hear it. What exactly does the Father's voice sound like? I think Hollywood's kind of ruined it for us, right? There's always this big, booming, booming voice. There's power in, in the voice of God, but it's going to be fascinating and to see God, but then also to hear his voice, to hear the Father speak. In verse 30, Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. The Father spoke for their benefit. Verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, and the ruler of this world is none other than Satan. 
that Satan is defeated at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why now we don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. Verse 32, And I, if I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Do you want to impact people for eternity? Do you want to see people's hearts come to Jesus Christ? Here's the secret. It's not your personality. It's not your persuasiveness. It's sharing Jesus Christ and him crucified. What did Jesus just say? He said, when I'm lifted up, all people will come to me. And he was signifying the way that he would die. He's talking about his crucifixion. So when we have a chance to talk to people that don't know Christ, what do we want to talk to them about? There's a fascinating book. It's probably 20 years old now. Max Lucado wrote it. But it's called No Wonder I Call Him the Savior. And he was thinking, if I only had a few hours to share with somebody about Christ, what would I share with them? And if I'm, my memory serves me right, it's been a while since I've read it, he had had a conversation and felt like, man, I could have done a better job in that moment. Ever been there? So then he wrote this book. If I had that opportunity over again, this is what I would share with this person. And he did an awesome, fascinating job of talking about the cross and the seven sayings of Jesus when he was crucified. Jesus only said seven things when he was crucified. And we want to tell people of God's love, how his beard was ripped out, how he was spit upon, the thorns placed in his head, the nails that pierced his side, how he cried out and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Because it's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. That's what the book of Romans tells us. It's when people understand God gave his son for me. Jesus brutally went through that suffering upon the cross for me. God loves me. That's what melts their hearts and turns their hearts to Jesus Christ. So if you've got a few moments with a believer, that's what you share. You share Jesus Christ. Paul was a brilliant man. He studied under the best intellectuals of his day. And do you know what he wrote to the church of Corinth? He said, I have determined to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. If we don't get to the cross of Jesus Christ, we have missed the entire point. Why was Paul so determined to preach Christ? Because he says, this is the testimony of God. This is God's story. We think about when we see our kids suffer and how it breaks our heart. Imagine the father seeing blood run down the face of his son to see his son spit upon, to see his son mocked, to see his son take on the sin of the world, to take on the sin of the rapist, the child molester, the bitter person, the covetousness, the jealousy and the envy, all of it being poured upon Jesus. And the message of the cross is then the father had to punish the son for all of that wickedness. Jesus had to take that force upon the cross. And when that is shared, when the love of God is shared, that wins people's hearts. When Jesus is lifted up, people come to know him. Verse 34, the people answered him saying, we have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. And how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is the son of man? So their perception of the Messiah was that the 
Messiah could not die. So how could Jesus be talking of his crucifixion? Verse 35, then Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtakes you. He who walks in darkness doesn't know where he is going. Christ's message here is, I'm with you right now. I'm the light of the world, so respond right now and believe. And the light, the testimony that you have of Jesus Christ, it's important to respond to that right away. Don't wait. Maybe you haven't given your heart and your life over to Jesus Christ. Tonight's the night. You've got the testimony and the light of Jesus Christ. Verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Verse 37, but although he had gone, but although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Write down Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is the most pointed prophecy of Christ's suffering. It's mind-blowing when you read through it, and that's what Jesus is quoting here, and it's an answer to their question of how could the Messiah be lifted up? They had missed the prophecies in the Old Testament about the suffering of the Messiah. The only ones that they were focusing on is when Christ comes and rules over the nations, which will take place in his second coming, but they lost sight of all the prophecies that he was going to suffer. So he brings that back to their attention in Isaiah 53. Verse 39, therefore they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their hearts and hardened their, he's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah saw God's glory in Isaiah chapter 6, and he wrote these things to us, these prophecies that are given. I want to put this in a, a very clear way so that no one misunderstands this. Is they would not believe, so they could not believe. They would not believe, so they could not believe. We read first that they would not believe. And then at some point, God confirmed their decision, and they could not believe. Genesis 6 verse 3 says this, that the Spirit of God will not always strive with man. We don't know when this point is. We're not the Holy Spirit. So we should always continue praying for people and sharing with people. We never know when that hard heart may soften. But there is a point in life where God knocks upon the door, he shows the love of his son, and they say no to Jesus. They say no to Jesus. They say no to Jesus. And at some point, God will confirm that decision. And that's what happens with this group of people. It's also what happened with Pharaoh. Pharaoh first hardened his heart, and over a period of time, then God confirmed that decision, and Pharaoh hardened, and hardened Pharaoh's heart. I'm just glad I didn't say fart, because... <laughs> That's just not appropriate in church. <laughs> we'll leave that there, right there. Verse 42. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they didn't confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. 
for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. How many times have we been there? How many times do, do we do this? Verse 44, Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. So Christ is speaking with passion. He's crying out. And he's saying, if you believe in me, it's not just that you're believing in me, you're believing in the one who sent me. If you believe in Christ, you believe in the Father. And then he goes on and makes this bold statement. He says, and he who sees me sees him who sent me. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the express image of the Father. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. Jesus came to save us and get us out of darkness. He didn't save us to leave us in darkness. He came so that we wouldn't abide, that we wouldn't live in darkness any longer. Verse 47, And if anyone hears my words and doesn't believe, I do not judge him. For I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and doesn't receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I've spoken will judge him in the last days. It's their own rejection of Christ that will judge him in the end. Christ isn't going to have to judge them in that sense. He's just simply going to have to play back to them their decision with Jesus, their rejection of Christ's words. They're judged by their own rejection. In verse 49, For I've spoken, for I've not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command. What I, what I should say and what I should not speak, and I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Think about this in this way. The Father sent the Son, so the Son speaks on behalf of the Father, has the authority of the Father. Who did the Son send? Us. What did the Son tell us to do? To declare the gospel and make disciples. And that when we declare the gospel and make disciples, that he's with us, lo, until the end of the age. And he has all authority. So when you get to go out and I get to go out and share the love of Jesus Christ, guess what? We're not speaking on our own authority. There's a lot of times we're pontificating on our opinions. But when we share the gospel when we share Jesus Christ and him crucified, when we look somebody in the eye and say, God loves you, Jesus died for you, and he rose again, if you'll repent and believe you'll be saved, guess what? We're speaking with the authority of Christ, who has the authority of the Father. That's pretty powerful. Think about Jesus standing with you when you're sharing the gospel, when you're loving somebody in Jesus' name. A lot of things to think about and contemplate. And I want to try to give just two quick points of application. And the first is worship with Mary. Is there some alabaster box that we can bring to the Lord this week? A creative way that we can worship the Lord and express our love to the Lord. And then the other lesson that we see from this chapter is from wheat. That wheat has to die in order to bring back life, to bring about life. Jesus died in order to bring about life. Are we willing to die? Are we willing daily to look at the cross of Jesus Christ and say, my flesh is crucified. I'm not living for me. I'm living for Jesus today. 
And may we make that decision tonight, but also tomorrow morning. Try it. Get up in the morning. Declare to the Lord, I'm yours today. I'm living for you today. I'm not going to try to save my life or love this life. I'm going to hate this life for your sake. I'm going to surrender this life for your sake. I want to live for you today. So let's pray.